Amen. Today, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to continue our study on the Hebrew names of God. God, in His great wisdom and grace, has given a self-disclosure, a revelation as to His character, His essence, His nature. One of His attributes that we're going to look at, one of His names today, is the name Jehovah Nisi, uh, translated, the Lord is our, our banner. His banner over us is victory. His banner over us is love. Our text is, is Exodus 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. It's February the 23rd, 1945. February 23, 1945, our servicemen were in a hotly contested battle on the island of Iwo Jima. Today, if you will go to our nation's capital, you will see the very conspicuous, it's my favorite uh, monument of all, where those men, those servicemen were hoisting, you remember this? Hoisting that American flag on that island of Iwo Jima. And it is a powerful demonstration of courage, of hope, and determination. I'm telling you, when you read the story and you study it, the Japanese were as determined to keep that island as the Americans were to take it. In his book, Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley tells the story of the raising of that flag, and he tells us that it was actually the second uh, flag raising that day. The first one was not, was not large enough, was not big enough, and so they ordered the small flag down, and in the midst of combat, in the midst of battle, those soldiers rushed back up the top of Mount Sarabachi, and they hoisted that flag, that banner, that sail, call it what you will. And when they did that, the military personnel, the Navy, the Army, the Marines below on the island, here, here's what happened. I want to read to you a first-hand account. An amazing noise rose from the island below and from the ships offshore. Thousands of Navy and Marine personnel had been watching the patrol as they climbed to the volcano's rim when the small swatch of color fluttered and Iwo Jima was transformed for a few moments into New York City's Times Square on a New Year's Eve. Infantrymen cheered, they whistled, they waved their helmets. Here was the evidence of Sarabachi's conquest. Here was the first invader's flag ever planted in 4,000 years on the soil of Japan. Later that day, the colonel, whose name was Chandler Johnson, ordered Lieutenant Ted Tuttle, and he gave him these words. He said, secure the flag and go put up a bigger flag because I want everybody on this island so that then when they look up, they can see the red, white, and blue and know that we have conquered. You know, all throughout history, armies have used banners or flags to connote their allegiance and to their loyalty to the country for which they are defending and fighting. I can still see in my mind's eyes, I look through the annals of antiquity and history and time as, as armies move forward, and that brave guy... And a lot of times he dies, but he has no weapons, but he, but he holds the banner and he, he holds the flag. And oftentimes they will have their, their names of the gods imprinted on these flags. And one of the names of our God that he has given within the milieu, within the context or the epic of war, it is one of contest and military and, and embattlement and, and anguish and difficulty. And that is, that is just like our God. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, God rises up. He manifests His glory. He manifests His nature, His, His essence of who He is. And within this context of war, 
God says, Moses, I am Jehovah Nisi, and Moses builds an altar within the context of war. So I'll read it to you. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. That was his banner. That was his Nisi, okay? That was his conspicuous demonstration of a flag. In this case, it's not a flag. It's a rod, and he holds it in his hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and they put it under Moses, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, now note this, this is God speaking to Moses. Write this down as a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I may utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses, into, in, notice this, in response to God's self-disclosure and this revelatory moment in time, in the milieu and the epic of history of war and military might, notice what God does. He reveals himself and Moses, in response, builds an altar. And he calls the name of the altar, the Lord is my Nisi. The Lord is my banner. God, you, you yourself are my courage, my hope, my victory, my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation unto generation. Yes, 3,500 years ago, the Israelites and the Malachites waged war against one another. And within that context of war, God took the initiative and he revealed himself in a powerful way, in a conspicuous way, so that you and I here today are the beneficiaries and we get to study and analyze and, and ruminate and chew on just one of these facets, one of these multifacets of God's nature, his character, and his essence. This passage of Scripture reminds me of some very encouraging words of God. For example, in Proverbs, the name of the Lord uh, is a strong tower. And the righteous of God, we, we run to it and we are safe. I think of Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Martin Luther describes it this way. He says, great is our, our woe. Great is the enemy of our souls, but a mighty fortress is our God. He is a bulwark that never falters or he never fails. And so today, church family here at Great Hills in the Austin, Texas, I want to share a message with you that simultaneously will disclose mentally, cognitively, an attribute, a characteristic of God. And in the same moment, I, I want you to receive encouragement and comfort in this name of God 
So that the next time you find yourself within this nomenclature of war and pain and difficulty and and severity and hostility and enmity and all these harsh and difficult things in which we have to go through, in the midst of that and in the conflict of that, you'll stop and you'll say, but wait a minute, God, you are a strong tower. God, you are my banner. You are overshadowing me. And Lord, you are more powerful than my enemy with which I have to constantly engage. God gave me a word this morning. I I studied this in India. I typed this manuscript 38,000 feet above the, the ground flying back from India. But when I came back to the States, came back to earth, I, God gave me this word. Nations battle periodically, but Christians battle ongoingly against our common foe, the devil. And so today I want to talk to you about your enemy. I want to talk to you about your allies. And then I want to talk to you about the Lord. First of all, know who your enemies are. Know your enemies. Number one, the Israelites had many enemies. And in this case, the first group to attack them was none other than the descendants of Amalek, the grandson of Esau. You remember back with Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau sold his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob, twin brother, for a bowl of stew, for a bowl of soup. He sold his birthright. Ever since that moment, there was enmity, hostility, and difficulty between these two camps, between the descendants and the offspring of Esau and the descendants and the posterity of Jacob. The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau And they still hate the Israelites. Here it is in this text, 400 years removed. God has taken them out of Egyptian bondage and captivity, and he has delivered them in what is the most conspicuous and awesome event in all the Old Testament, and that is God's exodus where he brought his children out to the Red Sea and All of a sudden, the waters, they part and the sea congeals. It becomes this harsh, I mean, excuse me, hard pavement of a surface. And the children of Israel, they walk through the sea. And as they get on to the other side, it's almost immediately the Amalekites come. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the way it happens a lot of times? We come off of a mountaintop of experience, the exodus, only to go into a valley of difficulty and and war. And so the Amalekites are waiting on the Israelites. When you read the text and the geography, it's very interesting. They dwelled among the Negev, the southern part of Israel there in the desert regions. But when they heard that Israel was coming, they made their way south to Rephidim, and there they engaged them in battle. In fact, Deuteronomy says this. You remember what Amalek did to you? Do you remember what Amalek did to you as you were coming out of Egypt. He met you on the way. He attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired, you were weary, and your enemy did not fear God. The Amalekites and the Israelites have a history of war. In fact, when you fast forward to King Saul, you'll remember that God said, Saul, take them out. Do not leave any alive. And Saul compromised, and he thought he knew better than God. And such an egregious error that we often make, even in our day, we think we know better than what God says. And, and so he left the, the king, Agag, 
who was an Amalekite, he left him alive. And he left the, the sheep and the choice animals alive, and he sinned against God. And it's interesting, in 2 Samuel 1.10, that Saul was killed by an Amalekite. Fast forward a few hundred more years to the time of Esther. One of the great books, I love the, this book of the Bible, Esther. Queen Esther has an arch enemy, Haman is his name. He hates Esther. He hates Mordecai. He is, and interesting enough, an Amalekite. So you have this hostility, this enmity that was birthed in their forefathers and never resolved, and so it, it just kind of festers and it evolves. It matriculates to this point of conflict. And so they, they deal with this. In fact, he says, you're, you're going to have problems with these guys, the Amalekites, and one day I'll just erase them forever. And so that's why today you never hear about the Amalekites. So that was Israel's enemy. He said, well, Brother Danny, I really appreciate your hard study and your Old Testament background and theology, but what in heaven's name has that got to do with me in 2010? I'm not fighting any Amalekite. Best I know, I, I guess my, my enemy is over in Afghan somewhere, some Pakistani, someplace over there. No, not at all. In fact, you have a very powerful, noted enemy, and he's none other than the devil himself. And you ought to know who your enemy is. The Bible says we do not war against flesh and blood, Paul writes, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Peter says these words in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, for our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion. And he seeks whom he may devour. Now, whether it's in sophisticated, materialistic, jaded Austin, or it is abject poverty and pain and angst and difficulty in India, 1.3 billion people. And I, I, I think I saw a billion of them last week. I've never seen so many people. In all my life, so many poor people, so many broken bodies and hurt lives, and they worship 330 million different gods and goddesses. They have gods for gnats. They have gods for monkeys. They have gods for bugs. And they worship these gods hoping that one day they will find the right God and be, and be cleansed and forgiven. It really is it's interesting. But what I also notice, whether it's, that context, or whether it's our context, the devil gives ground very, very reluctantly. And he does not want to part with that which he holds. And I, I'm convinced that our, that our common foe, the enemy, has a death grip on our city. And I believe Austin, Texas, in many ways, is gripped by the evil one because when I go talk to people, and you go talk to people, I don't need your God. Man, I've got a Mercedes-Benz. I've got an education. I've got my wife and a mistress on the side. My kids are okay and healthy. Just tell me, please, why do I need your God? And so there is this grip on the souls of men and women, sophisticated, academic, erudite men and women in the city of Austin. I would say today, you are under the death grip of the evil one. That same enemy is, has a grip on the country of India that is like a vice. But here's what else I'm seeing. I say, God, he's so much bigger. Our God is greater. Did we not sing that a minute ago? Our God is stronger. Do we believe that? I want you to know, friend, I really believe it. 
And I believe that through the preaching of God's Word and through Great Hills Baptist Church, I believe God is going to do awesome things in this city. <laughs> Anybody else believe that? <laughs> Am I just up here whistling Dixie or anything? Or like, I, I do. And maybe I'm wrong. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe, it's, maybe, it's, uh, maybe I'm wrong. But I really believe God is greater and God will do a great work here. But we need to know who our enemy is. And it's not the Amalekites of old. It is the serpent of old, the adversary, the devil, who clouds and enshrouds people's minds and hearts and their allegiances to false gods. Nathan Stone writes these words. Moses said to Joshua in clear, crisp commands, Choose us some men and go fight. Fight with the Amalekites. Moses meant business. Too many people don't. We are not saved by works, but we are saved to work, Ephesians 2.10. And we are saved unto a serious warfare, end of quote. So number one, Great Hills, let us know our enemies. But number two, on a much more positive note, let us know our allies. Uh, whenever you deal with this nomenclature of war, you always have this common vernacular of enemy and allies. The enemies for the Israelites were the Amalekites. The allies for Israel, who, are, who were they? In fact, there are three or four very noted allies in our text, and I'm just going to give you a pop test. The, the professor's coming out at me today. I want to ask you a question. Who were Moses' allies in the text? Come on, be loud. If this was a ball game, you, you, you could shout it out. You could holler. Who, who are they? Aaron and, and her. But there's another one. Starts with a J. Joshua. Let's talk about these three allies that God gave Moses in his time of need. First of all, Joshua. Joshua is some kind of man. He is the commanding general on the ground. Moses is up on the hill, and he's, he is praying to God but Joshua's down there doing the battle against the Malachites. That's the same Joshua in Numbers 14, where he says, Do not fear them. Don't be intimidated by them. We can take them. I know our God is bigger. Our God is greater. I don't care that they look like giants. I don't care what the, how intimidating our foe. Caleb, do you agree? Yes, I agree. Let's go get them. No, 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 we can't do that. I, no, that's, that's Joshua. And 40 years later, it's Joshua and Caleb who go into the promised land. And, and, and Joshua takes Jericho, and then they move on and capture the land. That's, that's ally number one. Let's look at ally number two. Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is Moses' blood brother. They are brothers in arms. And they love each other, and, and they care for one another. And, and they are a blood's thicker than water. It really is. I got three brothers, and I'm telling you, if I had to go to war, I'd pick them over any of you because I, the blood, there's something about a blood, brother. And so, Aaron, how about this other guy, her? Not H E R, but H U R. Her, let me give you a little, some more little Bible trivia information. Her was married to Moses' sister named Miriam. So that makes Moses and her brothers-in-law. 
And so, man, this guy's got some powerful allies on his team, on his side. As Moses goes up to the hill and he's praying to God, the rod of God is extended high, but, but man, he gets tired and weary and he begins to falter and he begins to capitulate down. And I love what happens next. Aaron and her, they don't call a committee. They don't deliberate or, or say, man, what do you think we ought to do? They say, man, let's, let's lift him up. And so one is on the one side and they lift Moses up. The other on the other side and they hold Moses up and the enemy below the Amalekites and the Israelites, they're fighting hard and, and, and they look up and they see him. Oh no, I don't see Moses. I don't see his hands raised. I don't see him praying for us and they begin to get defeated. But after his allies and his comrades raise his arm, something very powerful happened. And, and we are very visual people, aren't we? We like to see things. And man, the Israelites, they looked up and they saw Moses with his allies, hands raised high. And this is what they thought. As long as that guy's up there praying, and I know God hears me, we will be victorious, and they, and they were. Do you know who your allies are? Your allies in the spiritual combat and warfare against the enemy is the person sitting to your right and to your left. Take a look at the person sitting at your right and left. Just, just look at them for a moment. Say, thank you for being my ally. <laughs> I wish I had a prettier ally, but that's all right. You're my ally. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding with you. Husbands, please, please don't go there. You know, guys, the point is we, we are in arms. We are in battle, in warfare. And the people of God, think about the allies that we have. We have the one true triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have empty tomb at Jerusalem. Spirit of God descends at Pentecost. We have the written record, the revelation of the Word of God. We have a brother and a sister in arms in Christ called the body of Christ. I want to tell you something, friend. There is no reason under heaven that we should ever be intimidated and acquiesce and capitulate and cower down to our common foe. You know why? Because greater is He, God, that is in us than he who is in this dastardly, wicked world. Greater is he that is in me, thank you, Lord, than he that is in this world. Our God is greater. Our God is strong. God, you are higher than any other. Why is it if we are allies, do we fight so much? Would somebody explain that to me? Why do we fuss with one another and argue? And when you go to my hometown of state of Alabama, I mean, they, there's a church here, and there's another church right here. And you go to a couple of miles, and there's another church. And it all started from this church. They said, well, why aren't you all together? Y'all be a lot stronger. Well, you just got to understand, sister, brother, so-and-so just couldn't get along, had a knockdown, drag out, had a business meeting one day, amen. And it was just awful. I mean, it was just ugly. And I know, I've been in those meetings. And as a young ministerial student, I very conspicuously stood up and walked out. And I heard an elderly lady say, bless him, Lord, bless him. Yeah, I was like, what are you people doing? What is up with this? Just think. If we knew who our allies were, that we are, we are brothers in arms. 
We are sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ. And, and our enemy is not the Amalekites or the Afghans or the Iraqis. I'm telling you what, guys, our enemy is Satan, and we are in war, and we have God as our awesome, awesome preeminent ally, but we also have one another. So let's don't fight with one another. Let's love one another. Yeah, well, be careful. Pastor, you're going to rambling. Well, then let me ramble. Ted Trailer tells a true story of, man, he... He was a new pastor, new city, Pensacola, Florida. And uh, things were going well for a time, I understand, the honeymoon. And then, Brother Terry, don't take this personal or anything, but um, him and the music minister just had a difference of philosophy. And it wasn't moral or doctrinal, but as a pastor, as the under-shepherd who has that prerogative, he said, I'm going to ask you to find another church. And he was okay, but his wife wasn't. And it got ugly. It was on like Donkey Kong, fierce. I mean, it just got seeping into the fabric of the church. And, and people began, well, I'm with the pastor. I'm with the music guy. He's been here 24 years. We don't know about this young whippersnapper guy. And so it was, it was just getting ugly. The pastor got death threats on his life from the Baptist brethren. <laughs> Death threats. We're going to kill you. And Pastor Ted was like, what? And then his wife got a letter addressed to not dear Liz, but dear Jezebel. Harsh. Pastor was out one night, and he drove up to his home. He said, you're making this up, aren't you? I wish I were. He drove up to his home. There were three men waiting on him. I thought, my land, this is where he gets beat up. I thought, the pastor's going to get beat up. And then he got out of his car, and he was, he was a little concerned, you know, and he got out, and he walked. He goes, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I know who you guys are. And he said, that's right, Pastor. In fact, uh, we've been busy. Today, we drove six hours one way from Pensacola to the area that you're from in Alabama. And we knew how, how difficult this was for you and what you were going through. You're probably ready to quit our church and go find another church. But we, we just wanted to be your allies. We wanted to help you. And here's how we want to help you. We met with your mom and dad today. And your mom and dad took us back to an innocent time in your life where before the beatings, the battles, the spiritual beatings and all these things, before all that, you... You, as a little boy, used to run around the countryside and drink out of this fresh artesian well there in Alabama. And so what we did is, here, and they gave him a pitcher of that water from that well and said, here, drink this, and may your physical and spiritual thirst be slated. And boy, tears began to well up in Pastor Ted's eyes. And they said, hold on, don't cry. We're not, we're not done. He said, your mom and dad also showed us, remember when you were a young teenager, Man, I remember these days, very innocent, naive. <laughs> he said, Ted, you, you, you as a teenager, you were, you laid out on this big old rock. And on that rock, you lifted your hands to God and said, God, I surrender. And if you want me to preach, I'll, I'll preach. And so what we did, we took a sledgehammer and we knocked off a big old chunk of that rock. And, and Brother Ted, remember, this, this was a rock upon which you lay to commit your life to Christ and vocational ministry. And things may be hard here now, but Jesus is your rock. Well, that was it. I mean, boo-hoo, boy, he was just crying. He was all, he was having them ugly cries. You know what I'm saying? You're moving your head, and it's gushing, it's ugly. And they say, oh, come on, hold on, we're not done. 
So on our way back, we stopped and we thought about your wife, Liz. And so we picked up a beautiful bouquet of flowers and we want you to give them to your wife. Just let her know. We don't think she's Jezebel incarnate. We, we think she is Liz Trailer, your beloved helpmeet. And we, we just want you to know we, we stand beside you and, and we encourage you. Well, he said it saved his life, saved his ministry. It encouraged him. It empowered him to keep going. You know, guys, I... I preached in the first service. I don't know if I communicated clearly or not. I, I tried, but I, I tried to communicate to them as I'm going to try to do to you. I believe our city is hungry for a church like this, a church that is unified, cross-generational, where the old and the young know each other and love each other and worship with each other, that preaches God's word, word for word, line upon line. I'm not perfect, but I am what you got. And, and I preach a perfect Bible and a holy God. And, and with worship and praise, I, I, I really think our city is, is grieved for this. The 92% who don't go to anybody's church. I, I think that in time, if God so wills it, that we'll become that kind of church. That is allied, unified, I mean powerful for the Lord. So know who your enemies are. We know who our enemy is. Know who our allies are. I hope today that you recognize them and appreciate them. But thirdly and most importantly, in this text, this revelation from God is know who Jehovah Nisi is. You know, it's wonderful to be able to teach you and encourage you uh, from my study about this word Nisi. It's a very fascinating word. Let me give you some, some definitions. First of all, it could also be known as NACE, N-A-C-E. And it means a flag, a sail, a banner, a pole, a sign, or a standard. The Hebrew verb form, nakah, N-A-C-A-C, -C, now this is the verb form, so listen to this. It means to gleam from afar, to be so conspicuously noted. And it means to raise as you would raise a beacon that jettisons the sky. Or it could mean a flag that flutters in the wind. Now, there are banners or sails or things that flutter and that you can see conspicuously, but, it, but it, not in this text. It, it, it's a pole. It is a, it is a, it's a rod. The banner, the Nisi, in our text today was the rod of God. It was a tangible piece of inanimate object that, that he lifts to the sky and as Moses lifts it up, the people are encouraged. Why? Because it's not your ordinary shepherd's crook. Remember, that's the rod of God in Moses' hands where Moses, he, he strikes the Egyptians and the ten plagues permeate the land. It is that rod that he throws down and it becomes a big snake, gobbles up all the other snakes. It's that rod of God. He strikes the Red Sea and the sea is parted and it's the rod of God where he strikes the, the rock at Horeb and water gushes out. I'm going to tell you, the Israelites said, man, I don't, know about, I don't know about all that rod stuff, but I sure like Moses handling it. And when it's in his hand and when it's raised up, we know that there's great power. It's not Moses. It's the God behind the rod. And when he raised up that rod, they were like, yes, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He will deliver us. Moses, you keep praying and we'll keep fighting. And it's in this context that God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. This is one of my names, Jehovah Nisi, the I am your, I'm your banner. 
My banner over you is victory. My banner over you is love. My banner over you is not cowardice or trepidation. My banner over you is stability and strength. Do you hear that this morning? Jehovah Nisi, let us know him within the context of our own spiritual skirmishes and wars and, and difficulties. The victory was accomplished through the intervention of God as symbolized through the upraised hands of Moses. You know, there have been some other banners, some nieces in the Bible. Let me give you a couple more and I'm done. First of all, Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. You remember this? You medical doctors, you remember this? You've seen the, the serpent on the pole? Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And there you go. That's a Nisi. That is a, that's a banner. You know, brother, what's the context? The context is they were fussing with one another. And they were arguing with one another. And they were so mad at Moses. You know, Moses, you sorry rascal. Why did you? And so God says, okay, I'm going to send some snakes. They're just going to bite you. And he did. <laughs> Can you imagine? What? What do you think about Moses? I hate that guy. A snake? What was that? Man, that hurt. What was it? And a viper hanging on his britches, you know. And then a couple of ladies over by a fire, you know, and they're just talking. You know, what do you, what do you think about Moses, you know? What do you think about our pastor, Moses? I think he's just a sorry reprobate. Oh, mercy, man. What was that, a viper hanging on my head? Hey, be careful talking about your pastors. <laughs> God may send a viper and bite you, you know. Well, it's true. And, and so God said, God is always a God of mercy and compassion, redemption, forgiveness. He said, all right, put a pole up there, and it will be that anyone who is bitten, don't miss this, guys. This is it. This is powerful. This is Jehovah Nisi. And whoever looks at this pole will live So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and history says in Scripture, they looked at it, and they were healed. Interesting that fast forward uh, 3,000 years or uh, 2,500 years to the time of Christ, and in John chapter 3, as he's witnessing to Nicodemus, he gives us this example, and he applies it to himself. You remember this? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I, I could not wait to share this with you today, guys, that the preeminent, premier, most awesome example of Jehovah Nisi is the cross of His Son. And He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God when we humble ourselves and we look to the cross and we see the Son of God suspended between heaven and earth. And as He sheds His royal blood and He, is, he cleanses me from my sin and He washes me whiter than snow and I, and I look to Jehovah Nisi and I say, The Lord, He is my banner and His preeminent banner is the cross. Now, this message, Paul says, is moronic. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who believe, those of us who are being saved, it is the dunamis, the very power of God. So today, as I close my time with you, I, I ask you, do, do you know God in his demonstration of 
of power, the, the palpable power emanating from the cross of Christ who shed his blood and cleanses us from all sin. If you and your depravity and, and your darkness, Austin, and India, in your depravity and your darkness of the gods and the goddesses, if you will look, lift up your eyes, lift up your head, and you see Christ on the cross, and you look down and you see an empty tomb, and then you know there is a God in heaven who loves you, who cleanses you, has the power to regenerate you and to, and to immerse you into his family by his Holy Spirit. And, and you look and you see Jehovah Nisi for who he is, and you're cleansed and, and you're made well. Wow, what a gospel. It's a gospel that I was preaching a few nights ago and there were like 2,000 Hindus and 1,600 of them said, oh, yes. Wouldn't it be awesome in Austin one day? I get to, I get to preach and 80% of them say, yes. I give my life and allegiance to Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I, maybe I just fell off the turnip truck and bumped my head. I just believe it can happen. I believe, it, I believe it can happen. God will sweep across the city and he will, he will cause people to lift up their heads and they will see Christ. And, and I hope they see within us a radiant church that is preaching the Bible, singing the songs of, of God, unified and wholly united, not duking it out with sister so-and-so and not, not complaining and arguing, but just being unified under the banner of the cross. Man, if you're here today and you don't know God, you don't have a relationship with him, I invite you, look. Lift up your heads and see Christ on the cross. Look, look in these elements in this bread and in this juice and see his broken body and his shed blood and see his substitutionary, vicarious death for you, his death so that you don't have to die and you can be cleansed of God and forgiven of sins and made right in a relationship with him. I invite you today, whether you're listening on television or you listen to us on the internet or you're here today, I invite you to look up and see the most prominent, preeminent example of Jehovah Nisi with Jesus Christ on the cross. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, I know the Lord, but I tell you, I need to go public and I need to identify with him like this sweet, precious child of God in the waters that Chad baptized. I hear his voice echoing in my mind this morning. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Have you ever done that? Have you ever followed the Lord in baptism? You could be uh, Nisi. You could be a banner lifted up high, and all of us would look to you, and, and we would see redemption fresh and new, and, and you would motivate and encourage us. Would you be baptized? Others of you today need a place. Man, you need a church home, a place to belong, and we invite you to come to this place. If God so leads you, that you would unite and link with us here and, and allow us to pour life into you and encourage you so that you would go and be the church of God, the people of God. Father, it is with these words ringing in my mind, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor, they preach in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. So, Lord, we pray for you to move upon us, Lord. Move upon our city. Move upon our church. Father, would you spiritually prepare us so that, God, when you send the harvest, Lord, we will be ready for it. Lord, we're probably not ready right now for it. God, we've got some spiritual wrinkles that need to be ironed out, and we need to be unified, God. We need to 
Uh, God, we need to be focused on being a radiant church. So, God, please, please keep being patient with us. Encourage us, Lord. Help us. For when the rain comes, God, and your glory falls upon the city, I pray, Lord, that we will be that bulwark and we will be that bastion of hope and encouragement to a dark world. So, Lord, bless our invitation now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.